Today we'll be reading from Matthew 21, 23 through 32. Please stand out of respect for the reading of God's holy word. Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you this authority? Jesus replied, I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or from men? They discussed it among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, we are afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We don't know. Then he said, Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. The tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to show you the way of the righteous way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and prostitutes did, and even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Please be seated. (laughs) That's one of those texts, like, how do you preach on that? He just said it, I just want to go, "Uh uh-huh, let's pray. (laughs) Brothers and sisters in Christ, it's been called the greatest story ever told, right? Some refer to it as the story of Jesus and His love. But unfortunately, it can quickly be sentimentalized. And I know that's a word because it didn't get read under when I wrote it. You know, you know what I'm saying. For the story of Jesus is not only a story of love freely and sacrificially given to the undeserving, but it's also a story, unfortunately, of painful rejection. Here the king has come, as he's promised for thousands of years, to deliver his people from their sins. And out of everybody in the world, he comes to his chosen people first. And as you know, our Lord had about a three-year ministry. And at this point in Matthew's Gospel, he's got about a week left before his crucifixion. So Matthew is going to take a number of chapters here to describe for us and to show for us how this conflict, this tension that was been building from the beginning of Jesus' ministry till now between him, he, and the religious, the Jewish religious leaders, how it has now come to a fever pitch. And one of the things we need to see, it's an important uh, lesson, sub-lesson here is, sometimes we look at the crucifixion of Christ as a tragedy. You know, as just something that kind of, oh, Jesus is this innocent victim who fell into these, the hands of these evil men, right? But what we need to see is nobody takes Jesus' life from him. He knows exactly what he's doing. He is the king of glory. And that's why for up to three years, as much as the Pharisees kept trying to take him on, he would, he would uh, give wise answers and, and slip out for a while because it wasn't his time yet. Not because he was afraid. Not because he was worried about men or what they thought but because the time wasn't right. Well, now the time is right. 
and the Lord is coming to his temple. And he, this is actually... This is actually a passage not only about grace as we'll see in a few moments, but it is a passage about judgment. Just prior to this passage, just real quick recap or else this won't make sense, our passage. Jesus knows it's time and He's coming to confront them. No longer is He uh, on the defense if He comes to confront them. He walks into the temple in the Holy Week. And what does he do? He cleanses the temple and he makes this radical charge and it's easy to miss this if you don't see it. He says, is it not written, have you not heard that my house will be a house of prayer for all nations? And yet you, meaning the religious leaders in particular, have made it a house, a den of thieves. Right there, Jesus is claiming clearly who he is. I am the Lord of the temple. This is my house. I put you in charge of my house and this is the way you leave it? People are supposed to be able to come here and pray from all nations and come to me? And what do you do instead? Here's that word from this week. You exploit them. Let's just say they weren't very happy. That's where we find it. So Jesus, after having cleansed the temple, he comes to the temple and he begins to, to teach and to heal and to bless people. And he's in the middle of doing this wonderful work again. And here they come again. The chief priests, right? The other religious leaders from the Sanhedrin, official crew, uh, crew here. And they decide they're going to try to confront Jesus in his own house. I mean, I'm sorry, but it's one of those things. You have to have a little humor here. Seriously? Like, have you not been beaten up enough in the last three years? Every time you've confronted the Son of God, He's made you look like a fool. And now you're going to come into His house. You know, it's one of those things some people just don't ever learn, right? (laughs) And so they're going to come, they're going to confront Jesus, and they're going to ask Him a question about authority. But here's the issue. It's okay to ask the question. We should ask people, by what authority are you doing this? Because we want to make sure we're submitting to the true authority, to God's authority, not false authorities in our lives. Right? How many people in this world give themselves to wrong authorities and get themselves in trouble? It's a good question. The problem with the Pharisees is they didn't really have that honest question. They didn't uh, uh, wonder who Jesus claimed to be and what his authority claimed to be. They particularly asked him this question for one purpose and one purpose only, to try to trap him. They wanted to get him to say something that would turn him against the crowd, that would open him up to charges of blasphemy, and they thought, we got him. Because he's going to have to answer the question because he always tells the truth. Do you ever notice that? How evil people try to capture godly people righteous people because they know we can't lie right they get us at the right point and then they want to get us to incriminate ourselves and that's exactly what they want to do here to jesus but instead here's the interesting thing instead they find that as they go to put jesus on trial he quickly turns the tables and they become the ones on trial not very comfortable is it So we're going to see in this text, and it's such a simple message, and yet it's very, very powerful, is the rightful king 
unmasks faithful imposters and calls everyone to recognize and submit to his authority before it's too late. I'm going to repeat that. The rightful king unmasks faithless imposters and calls everyone to recognize and to submit to his authority before it's too late. And uh, three things in particular we're going to see in the text. First of all, pretenders try to put Jesus in a precarious position. Lots of P's in that. So you were worried, you know, when I said ain't in my thing, you thought, oh, this guy. No, I could say some big words. Pretenders try to put Jesus in a precarious position. Second thing, Jesus turns the tables and puts the pretenders in a precarious position. I, I like that. I got the word once. I thought, why is it all doing another time? And last of all, Jesus tells them three parables to prove his point. And I want you to see this, and we're going to jump right into it, and I'm going to make it as succinct as possible this morning. What I want you to see is um, the, the next three parables all go together here. So they set Jesus up, and then he says, okay, I'll take this opportunity to set you up. And then what Jesus does with three power, uh, parables is kind of what boxers do. Forgive me if I'm not perfect in my illustration, but I know I'm close. He gives them the old one, two, and then the third one's the uppercut, that knockout. That's where, you know, they count for the ten, and they're just out. And that's what Jesus does with these parables. And the first one is a mighty knock on the jaw that sends them reeling. And it's the, first, the only one we're going to look at this morning we're going to have time for, even though they all go together. We'll, we'll stop at the end of the first one this morning, and we'll pick it up where we left off next time. So take a look at the first thing. Pretenders try to put Jesus in a precarious position. Here's the question. What they're really asking is, who do you think you are? Sound familiar? Who died and left you, boss? Or one my wife and I like, and we shouldn't be laughing at, but like when little kids, you're not the boss of me. We don't like authority. I had someone say to me the other day, you know, I gotta, I gotta admit, I don't, have, I don't do too well with authority figures. The problem with the human race is none of us do. Right? Going back to the garden, we want to be like God. We don't want anybody telling us what to do, even if it's God himself. The chief priests here and, the, and the, the elders of the people, they don't come to Jesus with some deep, genuine desire to know, for, are you truly from God? Do you have the proper credentials to cleanse the temple like you did and to teach us with such authority? No, here's the, here's the issue with them, and you need to see this. They got caught with their hand in the cookie jar. And they're miffed. They were showed up for who they were. Jesus went right up and slapped a mask off their face. He revealed them for who they really were. And they didn't like it. Remember now, he tried to do this gently. For three years he bore with them. And lovingly pleaded with them. And lovingly taught them. And gently rebuked them. But now, as it were, the gloves are coming off. Jesus comes as a, in, in opposition and in direct difference, of uh, stark difference from the religious leaders of his day. And he came to demonstrate the love, the compassion, the care, and the righteousness of a true shepherd of God, the true shepherd of God's flock, the real deal, the genuine article. And when you think about it, that's the one thing imposters cannot stomach. 
is the real deal. So they pose him the question about authority in order to get him to incriminate himself so they could charge him with the charge, which eventually, by the way, that's the only thing they end up coming up with, with in order to crucify him, isn't it? This man claims to be God. And Jesus is like, mm-hmm. Yeah. The problem? <laughs> but not yet. They don't get him yet. Because he's got some work to do and he's got some teaching to give before he gives his life. So Jesus turns the table on him because, well, because he's Jesus. That's why. <laughs> I love him. He's my Lord. He's my Savior. And as Michael Green puts it, he says, he does this to show up the lack of integrity that underlies their question. So that's the first simple thing. These pretenders try to put Jesus in a precarious position. Second thing, told you it'd be quick. Second thing is, Jesus turns the tables on them and puts the pretenders in a precarious position. They thought that they had them. And whoop! And one fell swoop. They're facing the gallow. They don't like it. (laughs) So Jesus exposes their facade by asking them a simple question of his own. It was a simple thing, quick thing. So he tells them, listen, if you answer me this one question, very simple, then I will gladly and joyfully answer your question and tell you by what authority I've come. Sound good? Well, whether they liked it or not, he was going to ask it. And so... Instead of Jesus being in an impossible situation, they find themselves in one. So he asks them this, John's baptism, just curious, was it from God or was it from man? And of course, they did the whole, and so they gather together and they whisper together, they go, hey, hey, wait a minute, guys, guys, whoa, 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 nobody answered you, think about this. If we say it's from God, then what? Then he's going to say, then why didn't you listen to him? He said, I'm the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He called you to repent and take on His baptism as a preparation for the the coming of the Lord, me. But if we say, now listen to this, if we say it's from man, then the crowd is going to, they're going to mob us because they hold to John the Baptist that he's a prophet. So Jesus puts them in a position that all self-righteous prideful, know-it-all kind of people hate to be in. They're forced to say the one thing they never want to say in public. We don't know. Yeah, that was a good one. I don't But look at how ridiculous they look now. These are the teachers of the law, the, the priests, the elders of the people. And it was a simple question, right? This isn't like a deep theological question. And they failed to answer. Their answer was, we're agnostics. Good, faithful, religious Jews are all of a sudden agnostic. Isn't that interesting? So they're truly stuck between a rock and a hard place. They were so entrenched in their stubborn unbelief that they gave that one answer that prideful folks hate to give and they were left looking stupid. And one other quick thing before we jump to the next and last point. I told you this would be pretty quick, but the last point we're going to spend a couple minutes on. Um, what we see here is, look what kind of leaders they were. They were the kind of leaders that very often our political leaders are. How do they lead? They go like this. You follow me? Which way is the wind blowing? Yes, well, that's what I believe in. 
I'm for that. And the people, we have politicians who are against certain things in our culture we won't talk about right now, and they fought against them. And then as soon as they saw they did the polls a few years later, and the polls switched, all of a sudden they said, oh, I heard a good argument, I'm now for this. As if they never, and it was a silly argument that has been around for, you know, since the cows come home. Did they ever come home? Those cows? I don't know. But anyway, so that's the way they led because they were uh, concerned more about personal, I mean, about a public opinion than they were about the honor and the glory and the acceptance of the one true God. And the one thing they're going to say to Jesus to try to trap him again later, I mean, they really didn't learn, is they're going to say, we know that you are a teacher of righteousness who could care less about public opinion. And they think that way we got him. But that is the sign of the true king of Israel, that he doesn't care in that sense about what's popular. He's going to tell you the truth in love. They failed to do that miserably. And Jesus puts them on the hot seat. Uh, Michael Green again says this, because of their admitted inability to assess John, they implicitly confess with their incompetence, I'm sorry, they, they implicitly confess their incompetence to judge Jesus, whose mission and ministry are intertwined with John's. Their lack of integrity has boomeranged. I like the way he puts that. Now, now they're on the hot seat and they're between a rock and a hard place. And so Jesus, last thing I want you to see, Jesus tells them three parables to prove his point and we're only going to deal with the one. Look at verse 28. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work into the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir but he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. And I want to stop there for a second. Notice they figure, oh, we got to get it one right. (laughs) We want to sound right in front of the crowd, right? You know what I'm saying? So they said, the first. But little did they realize they just condemned themselves by answering the first. Because then Jesus says this. Um, He says this, I tell you the truth, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to show you the way of righteousness and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. One of the the kids that uh, is dear to my heart here in this church, and uh, I don't want to mention who they are and embarrass them, but man, I'll say this, she's lippy. And whenever we do activities, she's always the first to protest. She's always like, I ain't doing that thing, man. It's stupid. And, and when I first met her, I would take all my time to like try to, to take some time to say, oh, come on, this is good, it'll fun, you'll like it. And, and you know, I would I'd waste a lot of energy. And then I would give up. And then I would walk away. And lo and behold, I would just like look over my shoulder as the activity starts. And who's the one in the thick of it? doing all the, the dance moves or whatever activity we're doing, or the first one to put the gloves on, the one who was protesting so strongly. And it blesses my heart because she might protest with her mouth, but in her heart, she quickly changes her mind and she does the activity that we provided for her pleasure and, and, and to bring her joy and, and do something good um, for her. Then there are those quid kids who quickly ask for a volunteer and they're like, oh, 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 before you even, the question isn't done yet. And they're like, oh, oh, oh. And you're like, okay, you. And they, they just kind of 
feedback. Oh, never mind. And they're gone. You never see them again, as it were. And notice, who was the one that actually cooperated with the leaders and participated in the activity? Was it the one that so quickly said they would do it and were happy to do it, supposedly? Or is it the one that gave you a bunch of lip and protested at first? It was the one who first refused to do it. You see, the righteous leaders of Jesus' day, they made promises to God when they first embarked on being a leader of his people. They promised to serve, love, honor, and obey him and to minister his love to others. They said, as it were, oh, 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 God, pick me, pick me, I'll do it. I'll work in your vineyard. But when God came to visit them in the flesh, when he came to reveal himself to them and and the people they promised to lead in his ways, they were found out as mere professors, not possessors. The rejection of Jesus and his rightful authority over their lives displayed their stubborn unbelief and their willful refusal to obey their covenant God. Listen, they said they'd go, but bottom line, Jesus says, you never went. You see, this is the title of my sermon. Just saying ain't the same as obeying. Sounds familiar. Brother James was talking about that for a whole book we went through. You can make the right profession, but still lack to have that in your possession. You could quote the creed, the confession, whatever you want to quote. But do you follow it? Do you walk with the God who you profess to believe in? The religious leaders verbally said yes, but in their actions, or their inactions in this case, they said no. They basically were saying, we will not have this man rule over us. Yet, this is what Jesus points out, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the ones who at first said, we ain't going. You kidding me? Working your vineyard? Why would I? I want to live it up. I got my own life. And all these laws, I have to obey all these laws? No way. I am the captain of my own soul, the master of my own fate. They actually changed their minds once they started down that path. And they heeded John's call to repentance. They turned to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and they entered the kingdom of heaven and served in their father's vineyard. Now, I want, this is where I'm going to get preaching here. Why? Why did they do that? What made the difference? Because the despised, the sinful, the thieving tax collectors, those, you know, we always love to hate rich people, you know. Um, as much as they were outcasts, deep in their hearts, they knew that they had departed from the way and the will of God a long time ago in their lives. And they thought back, and I'm sure as they progressed in it, they thought they would look back and say, is there a way back? And I'm sure many times they said, no, it's too late for me. And what is my other option? Well, what other options do I have? So they would keep going in that miserable way of life. The prostitutes who sold their bodies to fulfill the lusts of wicked men, refusing to walk in God's will and His way and to do things His way, uh, even when it may include suffering, because it's right. They found themselves so far away from God 
so out of fellowship with God's people that when they saw John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Christ, proclaiming uh, repentance and a trust, calling people to trust in the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, they did just that. They repented of their sins. They took that opportunity to turn from their wickedness and take the hope offered out to them in the gospel and now give their lives over in submission to King Jesus. You remember the story, Jesus is meeting with a Pharisee who was barely even giving him the common accommodations you would give any guest. Remember? And then the one woman comes in, this sinner, and she falls at Jesus' feet and she pours out the expensive perfume and she's crying on his feet and wiping his feet with her hair. You remember that? Why? It was out of gratitude knowing that Jesus is not only the God of the second chance, He's the God of many, many, many chances. And He was willing to take her as she was. As if she had never sinned. They saw the hope of that chance and they saw the invitation to come back home and have a place, a full place, no strings attached at the Father's table where they would go from being estranged to being right into intimate fellowship with God knowing all his secrets what did Jesus say I no longer call you servants I call you what friends if you do what I command and that's one thing I want to mention in our day today we have um, heretical teaching that talks about Jesus loving people no matter what condition they're in. That part's not the heretical part. The heretical part is where they say, and it's okay. Jesus accepts them right in that behavior and they don't have to change. It's not what we see here, is it? What we see here is broken people who are broken over their sins, who acknowledge, you told me to go, I didn't go. Is it too late to come in? Will you have me? Can I serve you? Is my life as little I might have left? Is it worth anything? And Jesus' answer is a resounding, absolutely, child, just come home. The past is gone. You have a place at my table. But they call him Savior because he saves us from those sins. Not in order that we live in it still in anger and rebellion and selfishness. Douglas O'Donnell puts it this way, the gates of God's kingdom open wide to the bluntly ungodly if they repent, but not a crack for the precisely orthodox if they do not. That's the ironic reality here. God's kingdom is comprised of some pretty bad cats. Or dogs, Gentile dogs, he puts the parentheses. Or pigs, unclean swine. Jesus didn't come for the healthy, he came to cure the sick. So we shouldn't be surprised if the church is comprised of a bunch of once seemingly terminal spiritual cases. <laughs> Listen, I ain't going to look out there and point any finger, no, because I, I got the fingers right here. I was terminal. It was over for me. I didn't even like myself. And yet, Jesus took me. I'm going to talk about that in a moment. So Jesus says this, I tell you the truth, 
the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom ahead of you. Ahead of you. John came to show you the way of righteousness and you didn't believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes did. Here's the thing for us. We have a great promise here. We have a, a, the words of Jesus himself. If you're ever wondering if, if the devil's ever working in your heart to, to make you doubt this genuine offer of the gospel, look at this. Two groups of people that were despised, that were cast out, that were considered unholy and unclean. Two groups of people, um, the despised rich who were greedy and took advantage of other folk. They don't have too many friends, right? (laughs) And those who just used and had their bodies abused and completely um, sold themselves, body and soul, to the highest bidder. And Jesus holds open wide the gates. He says, come in, one and all. One and all. If you've been waiting, I don't know what you're waiting for. These words in Matthew 21 remind us of the incredible patience of our merciful, compassionate God. The tragedy of the religious leaders in Jesus' day is this. This last chilling line before he goes into his other two parables. Jesus says, even after you saw this, you didn't repent and believe him. You would think when you see the dregs of society, those who have turned away from God, those who are living in Marley, those who are living in greed, and and you see them flocking to John and becoming uh, disciples of Jesus and and worshiping God now and having a changed life and turning from their past sins, you would think that, that you would say, okay, something's going on here. We as the leaders, we need to humble ourselves and admit he's the real deal. And Jesus says, even then, you still stubbornly reject him i'm going to end with this because the lord brought this to my attention my memory and this is a a event in my life i'll never forget and i think i didn't even realize until i was really uh getting into this illustration and thinking it through what a real uh living parable this is of our lord's welcome of us as sinners who repent uh, while the day of grace is still open one day when i was in my late 20s yeah we're going back in my late 20s, uh, I, don't, I don't even remember where I was living. I was living away, obviously, not in the state. And I'm from Point Pleasant, as many of you know. And um, I went home. My dad was older, and I think he was sick because um, he was sick a lot. And he needed his yard raked. And we have those sweet gum trees, which I still have in my house over there in Ventnor now. Um, that was when I saw that there. I'm like, God, you're good. <laughs> You know, just give me a little reminder of when I grew up. And these, they have these little sticker balls, by the way. That's, that's so cool. When I was little, we used to throw them at each other, you know. But the problem with them is they would, in the fall, they would get dried up, and then you had to kind of rake them, and that was, like, real annoying. So I thought, you know, my dad's got a lot of burdens right now. There's not much I could do. I live away from home, but let me rake up his yard for him. And uh, so I started raking, and I was putting the little sticker balls into little piles. You know how you do that when you rake? And all of a sudden, it flooded over me. No lie, I, I, I thought in my heart, how many times when I was growing up, my dad gently would ask me to do this, or my brother would, and I refused. 
How many times my dad working his fingers to the bone, a mason, a bricklayer, he would leave before the sun came up and come home late at night, wiped out with literally cement all over his hands. You know, he took care of us and he loved us. And he would ask for such little things. And he wouldn't even ask. My brother would say, hey, let's do something nice for dad. And I would say, no, I ain't doing it. And as I'm raking it in my late 20s, feeling like this is kind of late to be doing this. Kind of remember, I broke his heart out of all three of his, his kids. I took his name. I threw it through the mud. He sacrificed everything he had so that we could do better. And yet, he, he asked so little of us. And I remember just thinking, thought of like this parable. Well, you know, it's better late than never. And because I had come to Christ, and the older I got in Christ, I began to appreciate more and more how much my dad sacrificed for me, how much he loved me. And uh, here's where it really gets interesting. The thing that really hit me about this is even though um, I was late in obeying and repenting, you know what's interesting about my dad? And it really hit me when I was studying for this. He completely forgave me. I completely had, again, the full rights of his son when I had had really uh, deserved nothing from him. And um, I had a place at his table So much so that my brother who lives around the corner from him his whole life and who takes care of him day and night, you know, my my dad, when I'm over there, he would would hit the phone ring and go, hello? He would go, he'd look at me like, it's your brother. And then, you know, one of those things that they'd hang up, right? But when I would walk in the room, when I would first, he would go, Sam, what are you doing here? And and I used to tweak my brother because my dad would treat me special and I was like, you know. So not only did he forgive me, But he went above and beyond and treated me like, you know, like I was some kind of hero coming home when really I had forfeited any rights that I had. And here is the real powerful thing I wanted to tell you. Uh, We we moved those those, uh, tissues. Do we have any? Oh, there they are. Thanks. The powerful thing is this. This is one of the first times in my life that I actually understand more fully something that you would think that you would know fully when you first get saved, and that's this. We always hear in the promises of the gospel, the old, in the Old Testament, the New Covenant promises, and I will remember their sins no more. Ever hear that? Yeah, of course you have. Or as far as the east is the west, have I removed their sins from them? And I believed that and I knew it to a degree. But the interesting thing with my dad is that mirrors what God did for us, our Heavenly Father. He never brought up once, one time again, till the day he died, any of my sins. Not one. Not even, hey, Sam, remember that time? Nothing. He literally acted as if they never happened. And to the day he died, when we would have fellowship and friendship, he would giggle and laugh to show that he was proud of me. Brothers and sisters, what we see in this text is that today is the day of grace. doesn't matter where you are. doesn't matter where you've been. Come home. When the Father says He won't hold it against you, He means He won't hold it against you. He's not going to bring it up again. Your past is done. That person is dead. You are a new person in Christ. And on the other hand, we need to see this as well. 
if this doesn't move you at all, my friend, you are in a bad way. Blue is the color of a heart so cold that will not bend when the story's told. The Son of God, what is it, who died for a sinful race of the blood that flowed down Jesus' face. And the thing is, God even loved those Pharisees. Did you know that? He did, he was not joyful over their punishment. It tells us in Ezekiel, God does not delight in the death of the wicked. And I'll tell you, it's a wake-up call for us in the church who claim to be Christians. We've got to remember, just saying ain't the same as obeying. The question is, is King Jesus your king? Or did you tell him you're going to go, but you're still playing out in your own field? He calls you to a higher calling. He has work to do and He is willing to give you a job that makes a difference for Him and for His kingdom. Instead of a, a lifestyle that not only destroys yourself but leads others down that primrose path. We see in this text and I'm closing. I really am. Jesus is on His way to not just say but to do. He says, I love you. And then he shows you how much. Because he lets these evil, wicked, vindictive people put him to death when he could have just said, angels? Get rid of these people, man. I've had enough of them. But he stays there. He does it for you and he does it for me. That's the grace of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for that invitation through the forerunner of the Christ and then through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ Himself. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We come anew, those of us who, who know you, Lord. We come anew this morning through your word. We take you at your word that you will not hold our sins against us that we could just move from here with the new life you've given us. Whether we've backslidden and maybe whether we've never really truly repented and believed before. Maybe we've been imposters. You don't do that just to shame us, Lord. You do this so that we can be true followers of you and put away our deceitfulness and find the real life you've, you've promised us. Father, we also pray, Lord, that you would help us to continue serving in your vineyard. No matter what the results are, holding out the hope of the gospel, leaving the results to you, but pleading with sinners. Why would you die? But once you, God, offers life. Oh, God, continue to build your church, your temple here. We praise you and bless you that we have a small part in that. Lord, use us. Use us to be workers in your vineyard. We beg you in Jesus' name. Amen. This Sunday sermon was preached by the Reverend Dr. Santo Garofolo. New City's Sunday sermon is recorded live on location at New City Fellowship of Atlantic City. 
If you're in the Atlantic City area, stop by. Our address is 215 North Sovereign Avenue, Atlantic City, New Jersey. Visit us online at newcityac.org. That's www.newcityac.org. Oh God is written and performed by the Reverend Dr. Sandra Garofolo. Join us next week for a brand new New Cities Sunday Sermon.